Hello and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster and today I'm excited to be speaking with Warren Bingham who is the author of George Washington's 1791 Southern Tour. Newly elected President George Washington set out to visit the new nation, aware that he was the singular unifying figure in America. The journey's finale was a Southern Tour starting in March 1791. The long and arduous trek from the Capitol in Philadelphia passed through seven states in the future Washington, D.C. But the focus was on Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. The president kept a rigorous schedule, enduring rugged roads and hazardous water crossings. His highly anticipated arrival in each destination was celebrated with countless teas, parades, dinners, and dances. Author Warren Bingham reveals the history and lore of the most beloved American president in his survey of the newly formed Southern United States. Warren Bingham is a writer, speaker, and broadcaster with a deep interest in Southern history and lore. A graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and of Hollins University in Roanoke, Virginia, Bingham lives in North Carolina with his wife, Laura, and a couple of hounds. Warren, thanks for joining me. Let's talk about this uh, journey that Washington goes on, and we're talking during the 230th anniversary of Washington's journey south. And today is April 28th while we're recording this, and I'm going to release this podcast on Monday, which is May 3rd. And that will be a day after May 2nd. And uh, you probably know this, but on May 2nd is when Washington arrived in Charleston, which is where I live at. So that's, you know, a neat connection, I think, to the time period in which we're recording this podcast. And you and I, we both love history. And when the first, when the book first came out, you and I had conversations about um, history and about George Washington and the places he visited. But you have a, a love for history and a love that has grown for Southern history, learning about the founding fathers. Can you tell our audience what about this time period interest you and how you came to be uh to came to have a love for this period of history well certainly and um yeah it is really cool to be discussing this on the 230th anniversary uh of the trip and in fact uh, as you're saying literally washington uh, was already in south carolina on the day that we're recording this he was going down a uh, myrtle beach uh, as we know it now, uh, it was then called the, I think, the Long Beach of the Long Bay. Uh, and uh, he, Washington and his small entourage were, were going down the wide strand of what's now Myrtle Beach uh, on the day that we're talking. So that, that image has been in my mind this morning. But the, the, I've always loved early American history, and in general I love American history right up to, to recent times. And so the thing that I think intrigues me about sharing uh George Washington's travels, and particularly President Washington's trip south, and I'm a native southerner, is that it is a way for almost all of us to relate to the story. You know, because we talk about uh, the places where Washington went, the things he saw, the people he met with, uh, the names of places and rivers and mountains, etc., and those still exist or namesakes are there for these people that Washington met with. So to me, it's a way to relate a little bit easier and better, particularly for those who don't love history as much, to relate to this history. And um, years ago, I started giving talks for fun on historical topics, and 
uh, quickly, this became the most popular one. People liked it. It was the kind of thing, Johnny, that that um, I think they'd come into the meeting and they would see that uh, I was going to speak on George Washington's Southern Tour, and they would say, gosh, this sounds horrible. And at the end, they were smiling and saying they appreciated it. So so I sort of caught on that this was a good hook to interest people uh, in history and early presidential history and early American history in general. And I've been uh, kind of talking and writing about it ever since. You know, it's weird. I don't know how many people would understand what what it is about wanting to speak about history for fun because I completely get that it's it's like you're wanting to pass something on because it, it's almost when you hear uh, maybe this is the best way to explain it when you have just heard a great joke that you know is going to kill with your group of friends and you can't wait to go share that joke when you hear a good historical tidbit that's the way it is when you're a history dork or nerd like we are you can't wait to share that fact, and you want to try to share that with as many people as you can. And speaking in front of groups of people uh, is like the best way to do that. And there's, for lack of a better term, there's almost a high that comes with that when you get to do this, uh, when you get to share this information, and you know, and you get to see that it connects with people, especially on a subject like this. That a lot of people don't know about uh, Washington's Southern Tour. Well, that's right. It's just a way, I think, to reach people with something that uh, that really might interest them, but they don't realize it until they hear it told in mm-hmm. a certain way. You know, history is storytelling, and stories can be told in different ways. And I think uh, when you speak on something, uh, in a way, it's it's even easier than writing about it, or at least I find it that way. Um, and that's how I got started on this subject for a number of years giving talks on the subject before I finally started writing about it. And thankful, I'm thankful to the History Press for letting me publish a book uh, on the topic. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, it's a fun story in that uh, it covers a limited area geographically in that it's, we're going from Philadelphia to Georgia, uh, but we're, yet we're talking about George Washington, the first American president. We also are talking about travel of that era and how challenging that was we're talking about you know how he traveled and then where he traveled and we're talking a little bit about the context of what was happening in america overall and with the federal government at the time so it weaves together a lot of different things but right down to a horse's name to us talking about alexander hamilton and uh, the first tax that washington was dealing with when he made this trip so you know it's kind of the big themes and the little things, and the little things are what I think interests the average uh, reader or listener. Yeah, and you know, you I was going to talk about that a little bit later, but let's go ahead and jump into it because Washington's used to big troop movements. Um, even thinking about it, you know, you have to retreat because you know a lot of the, one of the reasons the revolution was a success when you think about it is his very well managed retreats to keep the army fighting his army fighting for another day. And that has to be very well managed logistically. But even going on this tour was a big logistic movement in a way for him. Um, because he's also, if, you, if you're a general in the field, you have to have lines of communication open. And you kind of brought up with the lines of communication because he's still having to run the government from a carriage. Um, he's a president on a move. You have to have that going. Uh, you have to have all these because Washington 
you know, he's got an image to uphold. He's got to have all these things that go with him. Um, he's got to have, uh, yeah, he's in a carriage, but when he gets to a town, he's got a charger to get on. Um, you know, what's the logistics of getting him ready to go on the road, Warren? Well, Washington loved plans and details, uh, probably to a fault, if that's possible. I mean, I think <laughs> he used to drive uh, other officers uh, and, and men in general in the Revolution uh, era crazy with uh, worrying about certain uh, details of even how a camp would be designed and, and how a tent would be designed and, and so forth. But there was a lot of beauty in George Washington and his details. And just like the old military guy he was, yes, he, he sort of viewed his travels, and particularly this long southern tour, which carried him from Philadelphia to Georgia and back, as a, as a logistical undertaking of significance. And so for months before he traveled, he consulted with the gentlemen in Philadelphia primarily uh, that were southerners about the roads to take, uh, where to cross water, where there were bridges, which towns he should see who he should see, and so forth. And then where were you able to stay reliably back then? Because there were the, the, particularly in the South, the inns and taverns had a, were not good, and some worse than others. And he wanted to know uh, sort of uh, a review of those. And also, where do you take care of your horses? Because this was so important in the travel. So Washington uh, got all this information together, Johnny, before the trip, and put together his own itinerary. Um, he, he basically, I'll say this, he wanted to get to Charleston. That was the one place he needed to get to on this southern tour because it was the third largest city in the country at the time. It was his chief largest supporting city in the south, and it was just the most prominent place in the south. And otherwise, Washington just wanted kind of a representative tour through Virginia and the Carolinas and Georgia. And so it was uh, mainly a mission to get to Charleston and then, you know, how am I going to do it? And how am I going to feed my horses? And how am I going to feed myself? So Washington uh, put together his own staff. He, he had five men that he had hired on to run his presidential house in Philadelphia. He brought them with him. Uh, he brought two enslaved men uh, with him to deal with the horses and the baggage wagon. And then uh, he hired his own secretary, uh, who traveled with him on all of his uh, trips to the States, William Jackson, a South Carolinian, who had been a hero in the Revolution in, in South mm -hmm. Carolina and had become a young man, single. He was perfect with his role. Uh, so he had become uh, Washington's secretary, and uh, he became a traveling secretary as well. So William Jackson uh, was doing a lot of uh, uh, funneling of letters uh, and correspondence back and forth while the president uh, traveled. Washington gave this detailed itinerary to his cabinet, and they, you know, they said, "Let's look ahead and see where I can reach, be reached by mail." Mm -hmm. But there weren't, but so many occasions during the trip, so there were a few weeks at a time where Washington was really pretty much out of touch. Uh, but uh, fortunately, uh, nothing went wrong, and the federal government was very small back then. Yes, very small. Now, you brought up something about where to sleep at and where to stay at, and you know, there's something still. Because you can go to different small towns in the United States um, or big cities with history dating to the time period of our founding fathers or very early in our country's history. And you can see a sign that says Washington ate here, Washington slept here. And there are some historians that will roll their eyes at that. But if it is an actual place where that happened, there's 
that's something that I think there's a meaning to having a connection to the president there because I still get goosebumps when I'm downtown in the old exchange building where Washington was entertained more than once. And of course, we know that he arrived when he crossed over from Mount Pleasant. That's where he was first you know, greeted, gave a little speech in the front of the old exchange building. And of course, when I go to visit the Hayward Washington house where he stated Thomas Hayward's house in downtown Charleston, um, there's something special about visiting those places. And I know I could go to Mount Vernon where Washington lived, but it's neat to know that there is this connection where so many of us can go to to visit where Washington was entertained, where Washington may have eaten, where Washington slept. Um, because it was, to me too, because it shows an importance for him to have gone to seeing this country. I mean, he could have taken a ship to Charleston, it seems like, but he took a road trip instead. Um, and it shows he, it was a connection to me, Warren, that he had to the country and that he wanted the country to have to him. And does that still play? To me, it does. But does that still seem like it is to you today that we want to still have this connection to George Washington? And that's why we're attracted to these places that he visited, because we want that connection to him still? Well, I think you're on to something, Johnny, because, you know, really, Washington, as you say, could have gone by water, but he wanted to connect with the people, more people as possible, and he liked to connect with the land and understand what the people were doing on the land and, and what industry might be developing, et cetera, and he was interested in commerce of various sort. So he was making that connection back then, and I think even today, now 230 years later, uh, a lot of us have that sense about what George Washington was here connecting with my ancestors or with Americans who came before me. And uh, it's just kind of cool to be near or in those footsteps. And so those sites, I think, resonate with people, particularly when you get past a couple hundred years from, from an event happening. So um, I, I, think, I think what you just uh, proposed is true. But let me mention, talking about where he slept, uh, one of the neatest things I discovered in my research of this, and there's a photograph of that bed in my book, uh, up in Southside Virginia, so Southern Virginia, uh, south of the James River, very rural area still to this day, um, a family uh, claims to, and I, I believe it, uh, they have the bed in which George Washington slept on this very trip as he was heading back north um, with the Coles family, so C O L E S, and. Uh, that was one of the neatest things to me on, you know, talking about kind of feeling a little bit in awe. So I'll go in this home. Now, this home is not the house where George slept. It's, it's a new house. It's like from 1810 mm -hmm. or something like that. A beautiful home, beautiful estate. And uh, yet they have this uh, bed where Washington slept. And uh, that just was a cool moment for me to visit with the family and the, the, the home and land still in the same family and the bed obviously been in the same family. And they have revered it uh, this whole time. But people have slept in it. Uh, uh, through his history, but, um, you know, so right in this level, we're taking it right down to the mattress uh, upon which he, uh, he slept. Uh, there are a lot of places in, in the South from this Southern tour where Washington stayed that uh, do still stand. Uh, a lot of places he visited still stand, but not so much where he, quote, slept. But, yes, in Charleston, there on Church Street, you do have one of those, those spots. And uh, uh, I, I think they're special. Sometimes it seems a little hokey. But once again, just kind of like talking about George Washington's travels, I think it's a way to relate history to the average citizen and for them to then pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's some, you know, you're talking about 
you did just speak to another point where he, you know, is looking at the layout of the land. You know, I think about the Great Dismal Swamp as he's passing by it. Um, I think it was when he was going through Augusta and talking about the, you know, the different you know, projects that would be happening there. Um, it he really did seem to care and take an interest in engineering, um, or what could take place on the land. Um, it's just this side of Washington that people don't think about because he was a surveyor and he saw possibility of what the land could yield or what the future may hold. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, well, by the way, we didn't mention this, but uh, for, for those who don't know, uh, the, the main source for my book and for my talks has been Washington's own travel diary uh, that he kept throughout this southern tour. And he documented things in it daily. Uh, except he stopped at Mount Vernon coming and going on the Southern Tour, and he didn't write about what he was up to daily at Mount Vernon. But otherwise, he wrote something every day. And to your point, Johnny, he often was writing down observations about the soil and about the tree types and about the crops, but he was very much into uh, travel, uh, commercial travel. He wanted to know how deep was this river, how far inland can you go up the James River? Uh, how uh, big a ship can you get into port here in Wilmington, North Carolina? Mm-hmm. And you could see that he would write about these conversations and inquiries uh, in his diary uh, throughout the trip. And I think it was, a, one, a personal interest and, and curiosity he had, but it was a, he was developing, I think, a vision for the United States about the way it could grow. And uh, he thought that uh, commerce was and agriculture both were key to it. And so, you know, you can see it from his diary entries, his interest uh, in that. Yeah, he's a, a whole different kind of visionary than, you know, more than a general, more than just a first president, a, a visionary, really, when you think about George Washington. Now, a couple more things. I, I know I said I would keep you just for a shorter amount of time. But I do have a couple more questions because two of my favorite things I haven't even brought up yet— uh, one is the odometer. Um, love love that on the wagon. Um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I, I've never tried very hard, and I'm not sure what I'd learn on that, but uh, I've never tried very hard to learn to, in any detail about this odometer. But Washington, in his diary, uh, recorded the miles traveled every day of uh, the journey. And, you know, depending on what they were doing or what their intentions were, it was anywhere from probably 20 to 40 miles a day. A typical travel day was 25 or 30 miles. And uh, But it would write it down precisely. He'd say, you know, travel 27 miles today. And he would also tell you about distances between stops along the way in a given day. And it's been documented that he had an odometer on his carriage. And the impression I have is that it was affixed to – uh, the, an axle on the on the carriage, and uh, someone had to slide up under there and read that thing all the time uh, to uh, suit uh, uh, the president, so he could get the recordings in his diary. Now maybe he did it himself. I, I don't know, but I've often wondered about well, how easy was that thing to read? Because uh, somewhere way back, someone that seemed credible, and that's as that's as sound and as and yet vague as I can be on this. Someone told me, yeah, it was probably under the under the vehicle, and you had to get up under there to read the thing. And some days he would put down three or four readings uh, of the axle and then total up the um, the, the mileage. So um, there was this odometer, and, yeah, that surprised me when I first learned that period. 
Uh, and uh, But that's a cool thing to know how many miles he traveled. And at the end of the trip, I believe it was 1,897 miles uh, round trip from Philadelphia to down to Savannah, up to Augusta, and then back up through the central parts of those states to get back to Philly. 1,897 miles he wrote it down. <laughs> so detail-oriented. So detail-oriented. All right. So, and then he stops by what will become the capital of the United States, right? On his he way. He did. He did. And uh, something I enjoyed is there's somebody who's not really wanting to give up some land um, for it. So he has to talk to him on the way down and on the way back up, if I remember correctly. That, that's right. So um, it was at this time, just months before, that Congress had acted on uh, basically uh, creating, I believe it's called the Residency uh, Act, or is it the Residence Act? Uh, I believe that's the proper name. And that the uh, capital could would be somewhere near the Potomac, and there were some parameters, but in that basic uh, region where it wound up, and George Washington, the president, uh, they, they essentially said, the president would choose the specific site along the Potomac in that area, somewhere, I think, from the falls of the Potomac uh, down to uh, where it wound up. And, of course, we know where it wound up, and it was on this very trip that uh, going south, uh, Washington stopped in what was then called Georgetown, Maryland, to uh, meet with the local landowners and leaders and also some appointed commissioners to the new federal district. These are people he had appointed to study the situation. And he had already hired Pierre Longfond, uh to be an engineer for this future city. And so on the way down, uh, he essentially met with people. He surveyed the situation, and um, you know he decided it's precisely where this uh, capital was going to go. And so, indeed, you know that was the deal. And it all seemed fairly pleasant because he assured everyone that they would be paid uh, appropriately for their land and so forth. Uh, but then, by the time he got back uh, three months later. Um, People were up in arms in the uh, Georgetown, Maryland, uh, and northern, and really Alexandria, Virginia, too, was concerned because they, they weren't sure what was going to be in their future out of this because at that time, the capital, of course, was going to encompass uh, Alexandria, Virginia as well. And they were concerned about, well, you know, what does this really mean, and how much of our land are you going to need or slash take, and what are you really going to pay us, and so forth. And uh, Washington was uh, not pleased with that, but I think it's a classic story of people being people and maybe Americans being Americans because, you know, they, they, it's kind of like the locals want to know, well, wait a minute, what's in, what's in it for us and what does this really mean? And so Washington uh, was irritated at all of this because he thought it was very ignoble of them, uh, that they were being totally greedy and selfish uh, in every way with their, uh, it, w the way they presented their, their appeals and concerns. So, but he essentially worked out a deal where uh, if they would give away part of their land, uh, and then the the uh, so uh, let's say I, I I'm vague on this, but I think this is the gist of it. Essentially, they take their land and divide it into thirds, and so we'll pay you for a third, you give us a third, and you keep the other third, and that will be worth something now because we're going to develop this area. It's really not worth much now, people. And we're going to make it worth something because we're going to develop this beautiful city here. And that was the gist of Washington's plan. And he won them over. But he also won them over with firmness because he said, the Residence Act said that if 
the uh, people of that region, if it didn't work out, if they did not accept the arrangements, that the capital would remain in Philadelphia. And so he told them that. And I don't think Washington wanted it to remain in Philadelphia, but I think he was determined that he would, uh, he would uh, pull that uh, threat. And uh, they quickly calmed down. And this was so it took him his second visit on the way back north from the southern tour to finally win the day. And uh, they, they actually had deed signings on that very uh, stop as Washington headed north, returning from the southern tour. I mean, just think about the fact that uh, that's wild that the president had to do this. It's crazy. I I mean, and I can see both sides, too. I mean, I wouldn't want somebody to come and take my property, but I can also see the, hey, we're trying to build a new capital. And I can see, too, that if you're going to develop a new capital, that's going to be, you know, some this land's going to be worth a lot more now. Um, because of what we're doing, because I mean, it's basically swamp land there. There's a reason why they call it a city in a swamp. Um, right. So it's it's right. amazing that that happened. It's you know it just shows you this whole other side to Washington and to his presidency, and it's a story that you know I never heard from it. And it also I knew he was involved in developing the capital, but it shows you just how much he had a hands on in choosing the new city because all you think about is well, well there's the white house washington never lived in the white house washington was already not president by the time that um washington the washington became the capital and he was already dead by the time adams moved to the white house he had a hands-on effort in moving that capital from philadelphia to where it is now uh he he definitely did in fact he would spend much of his presidency uh, going forward, then dealing with the details of developing the uh, the federal city, as he called it. And, in fact, on that second stop, let me mention, after he'd won the day with the uh, locals, uh, he and Lafont went out and and, uh, and and solidified the site of the what's become the White House. They called it the Executive Mansion, I believe, and the Capitol Building. I believe that was called Jenkins Hill, where the Capitol what we now call Capitol Hill, and so Washington, the old surveyor, was out there with Long Pond picking those locations. Amazing. Incredible. And with that, we'll wrap it up, because we are at 25 minutes on the dot right now. All right. Well, it, it's, well, it's, great, it's great conversation. Thank you so much, Warren. I agree. I appreciate you, sir. Thank you, Johnny. Appreciate what you and the History Press have uh, done for me and the topic of Washington Southern Tour. Thank you. And, of course, thank you, the audience, for joining me. George Washington 1791 Southern Tour is available now on ArcadiaPublishing.com and everywhere local books are sold. And if you have show suggestions or questions, please feel free to email me at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. And as always, thank you to Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can find them online by searching for Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project on Instagram and Facebook. I'll speak with you again soon.